0: Welcome to the Witty and Gritty Podcast. Hosted by Brooke and Barron. Your personal
1: growth matters. And we're here to help. Hey there, guys and
0: gals all over the world. How are you tonight? <laughs> so, this is one of our, we're closing up the vulnerability mini series. We're having two episodes air today. One is Janet, she's awesome. Take a listen. And then we have this one with Nancy, and it's Nancy Disterlich, mm-hmm. and she goes by Miss D, yeah, Mrs. D. Yep. So there's that, uh, and she is a guru on dyslexia, and I don't personally know this person, but Farron does.
1: Farron, yes. how did you guys meet, or want to talk around that? Yes. So um, I, part of my job, current job right now, is working with students that have dyslexia, um, helping with the dyslexia assessment, Doing dyslexia screening in kindergarten and first grade, uh, setting up dyslexia parent nights. Anywho, so I know Nancy and she is a guru and has tons of experience and knowledge on the topic of dyslexia. And this listener's choice comes from um, a lot of people know what I do and they have concerns about their children. And it's not always um, necessarily reading and dyslexia, but I do get asked a lot just kind of like for signs or symptoms um, of a learning disability, being uh, an elementary teacher, that's usually the first time that uh, parents are starting to notice that something might, might be a little off academically, and so I thought she'd be a great person to interview on the topic specifically dyslexia, but she does go into detail in general about learning disabilities and warning signs and things like that.
0: Right, so in case you have no idea, dyslexia is a learning disability, and we're gonna go into what dyslexia is, what it looks like, some common misconceptions or myths, we're gonna bust those, um, Farron, you ask really great questions and let's let's make sure everyone knows that Farron is a really good expert on
1: dyslexia as well. Yes. So she I... just works at a different place than Nancy. Oh, you stop that. I won't. I tried to per- give her the questions that I'm asked. So sometimes my questions are coming from a place of um, what I've heard parents say or like you said, uh, someone with misconceptions might ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I'm asking questions from a place of like, being a person that's familiar with the topic, so uh, that was kind of, could be confusing. (laughs) So, well,
0: so as a person who wasn't in this interview and is not an expert on dyslexia, it just sounds like you guys are sitting there talking about dyslexia, and I like how you're playing the role of, so what is it? Tell me more about it, because Mm -hmm. you might be one of you guys, listeners out there, who has questions about dyslexia, or you might listen to this episode and realize, um, you're telling my biography right now. This is me. So stay tuned and have fun with this. And we have a ton of show note links. So make sure you click on the link and go to the website and then you can see all the links
1: all pretty and attached. All right, let's get to it. Sounds good. Hey, Nancy, thanks for coming and being on our podcast today. Um, A lot of our audience members may not be familiar with you.
2: Can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Nancy Distrelik, and I'm the dyslexia consultant here at Region 10. And um, I have been in this position one year. I was previously in the elementary grade levels, first and second, and then I taught dyslexia uh, therapy at the high school level, and then worked a few years with students with autism. That's awesome. And now, what are you doing? So when I came to Region 10, my goal was to advocate for students with dyslexia at the district level and. Um, get more people informed of dyslexia not just being a reading and spelling disability but it's a processing disability and so the more we've educated we can help support screeners and advocating for identification and how to support students with dyslexia.
1: That's awesome and y'all I had the opportunity to hear Nancy speak um,
2: about a year
1: ago. And I knew I had to have her on our podcast to share more. Um, she has knowledge. She has wisdom. She has humor. <laughs> the perfect trifecta. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and get into it. Nancy, how do you define or describe dyslexia to someone that this, they've only heard the word dyslexia and they might not know anything
2: else? Uh, yeah, a lot of people think it just that it has to do with reading and spelling, mm-hmm. and so I like I like to inform, especially educators, if you have a student who is engaging you with conversation and they seem to have a creative mind and they can take the topic and go further, but then when you ask them to write about it or read about it, they avoid print. That's my best way to talk about what a dyslexia student how it may manifest in a classroom setting. And oftentimes with parents, I'll say, if you have a child, let's say they play baseball, and you're getting ready for to, to go to practice, and like, Mom, where's my, you know, the thing that I put on my hand, and Dad bought it last year, and you have a matching one, but yours is for the other hand. and we, They describe it in detail, but they can't retrieve the word MIT. Mm. So that's another thing that you'll see a dyslexic student have difficulty with, which is processing language, but affects reading and spelling.
1: So a lot of times when people bring up dyslexia they bring up the word reversal when they're like I thought dyslexia is just switching the letters around what's your response to you know that might be a piece of it but how would you explain that part of dyslexia
2: the other thing I hear a lot of people say, I thought that's where they read backwards.
1: Mm, and, mm-hmm.
2: and I was like, I wish I could. <laughs> that uh, I have a hard time reading forwards. <laughs> um, although your viewers might not know, I have dyslexia. I was not identified. I came from the state of Oklahoma where they uh, didn't test for it. And then two of my children have dyslexia. So we've gone through that process. Um, so when people would ask if I read backwards or if I can see the letters floating, um, those are not things that I particularly have experienced, I think some kids have, but I do have to ground my words with my finger. I do read with my finger. Mm -hmm. And so it's just giving them a new um, perspective on how dyslexia affects people and not those typical... We do reverse Bs and Ds, but it's not all of what we experience.
1: Right. So like you were just saying, you have dyslexia. Um, How or when did you discover that you had dyslexia?
2: So when I was... um, All growing up, I have stories, Nancy stories, one that I share the most often is in seventh grade, I misspelled my own name on a campaign poster. So I wrote it, saw it and hung it and did not realize I had spelled my own name wrong. So I have a whole bunch of those stories. And when I went to college, a mom happened to be a diagnostician and she said, it sounds like you have dyslexia. And I just said, wow, that sounds horrible. Is it contagious? I mean, I had (laughs) no idea what it was. Um, never thought about it again until my son was in first grade. And he was struggling to read, even though I'd put a lot of things in place to empower him in reading. And so um, his journey, we I went to Barnes & Noble and read The Secret Life of the Dyslexic Child. And at that point did I realize it was a biography of my own experiences. So... Years later, I became a dyslexia therapist, and when they had to practice the assessments, they're like, "Nancy, you're so dyslexic." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." So I I knew when I re- when I read the book, but that was when my son was six years old, seven mm-hmm. years old. So I never really knew.
1: So how did you get through school then without like, did you have reading support or services, or how did you cope? How do you think you went through school? without this being identified sooner?
2: Um, I, I am blessed that I had a very language-rich environment at home, and I had a great support system in my family and my community. So I think I was able to compensate. Um, what was happening internally is I would study harder than my peers, I would work harder than my peers, and my results would be less than them. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started developing frustration in school but not enough where a teacher would recognize it because I was a B student, sometimes Cs, Mm -hmm. where they were like, that's okay, that's average. And um, so then in high school, my very best friend was our salutatorian, and so she would help as an accommodation. Uh, The teacher would explain the assignment. I would look at her, and she was like, just wait. And then she would restate the instruction in a way that I could understand and she would do my accommodation. So I truly did make it through school with her support. That's awesome. Um,
1: I think sometimes we get parents and we bring up dyslexia and they share, like if we're looking at test, start the testing process. And they're kind of caught off guard because they do seem to be doing so well in school. Mm -hmm. Um, What is the range kind of on dyslexia? It I guess if you could speak to the ones, the parents that are surprised to hear, because they are making bees. Yeah, they seem frustrated, but you have to work hard in life. Um, What would you say to the parent that's like, really, dyslexia? I don't don't see that. They're not struggling like maybe some of their friends' kids do or family members' kids do.
2: One of my favorite analogies is if you were having trouble seeing Mm -hmm. and you went to an eye doctor and you said, you know, I'm having trouble with my vision they would not offer you Braille. They would do an assessment on you, and they'd say, you know, you just have dry eyes, you need drops, or you're only struggling when it's um, when you're reading, so you need readers, or you need bifocals, trifocals, maybe you have cataracts, you have surgery, then opportunity, you'd have to have Braille. Mm-hmm. So the same thing with dyslexia, what we're looking for is unexpectedness, and so each of our students, when they come to us for assessment, they may have a high cognitive ability, no other... Um, frustration, such as ADD or ADHD, and they have a language-rich home, that student with dyslexia looks completely different than my student that has two languages, ADHD, dysgraphia, um, not a language-rich home in English, and so that student's going to need different support. So when we say dyslexia, oftentimes parents or teachers think it's one; it has one perspective, but it, is, it affects people differently. So um, we also have it skewed where um, Louisa Motes is very, um, um, informs us that it's not a gift to have dyslexia. So we have parents like, oh, they have the gift of it. And And there's books that talk about it being a gift. I do think we compensate and we have strengths because of it, but the actual disability is dyslexia and we wouldn't want to choose that. So, um, but I feel like I have benefited from it. I mean, I found the lemonade in my situation. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question. No, you
1: definitely answered my question. And um, (laughs) I don't know why. When you were talking about your strengths and your lemonade, I couldn't help but remember (laughs) that you said one of your talents is that you can do impersonations really well. Anybody. Yeah. Well, (laughs) don't do me yet. (laughs) I don't know if I'm emotionally prepared for that because I'm amazing. So I don't want to hear any <laughs> impersonations that would be less than that. Uh, no, but um, what are some gifts that, te- that are coping mechanisms, I'd say, um, not the word gifts, that students maybe show, like they have um, great oral learning abilities and communications. What are some things that some people would refer to as gifts, but might be strengths you'd see in a student that would create the unexpectedness when it comes to their reading and writing.
2: I love how you worded that. Um, There are strengths on our coping. I I agree with you. So my ability to mimic, um, it's not that I read this, but after learning about dyslexia and what my brain is doing, I believe for myself that when a teacher was telling us information I could not recall Tuesday or Thursday or East and West or 13 and 31. I would get them confused when I went back to my writing or my notes or how to understand it. Mm -hmm. But I could mimic her and replay the tape of what my teacher said. And so mimic has become one of my strategies to recall information that was previously given to me. So I, I do think that was one of my compensations. And you'll see a lot of comedians and actors have dyslexia. And, you know, I'm watching how they mimic. And mm-hmm. so I do. I think that's some of the things that we've compensated.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I have a student that, when I work with
1: this student, they, uh, they try to say what I'm saying while I say it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And at first I was like, you know, are you li- is that listening? Is it distracting? But I've decided, kind of I guess what you're saying is, that's how she's learned to cope and remember. Is like she has to say it to herself too, mm-hmm. not only not only here reading out
2: loud is one of my favorite things and so I would have to go into another room and read out loud before I ever knew I was dyslexic but something about hearing it out loud I could retain the information better than reading in my head Mm -hmm. um for sure
1: yeah so you also mentioned that your um, son one of your children your son is that okay to say your son yes (laughs) Um, has dyslexia when did you start noticing um, some characteristics and what were some of those examples?
2: So I was a very proud stay home mom and I had done the alphabet and I had uh, he was already writing he was reading before he got to kindergarten I was very excited and we got there and he was behind and I was like, there's no way, mm-hmm. so we kept working on it, and then first grade is when it was really evident, because I'd call the teacher and say, how long do you think the homework should take? She was like, Mm, 20 minutes. We were spending two hours, mm-hmm. and he was already frustrated. He didn't want to go to school. He would do very well on the spelling test at home mm-hmm. with a lot of practice, and we had our, I didn't know at the time, they were dyslexia strategies so you know, I was we were sky riding them and moving our body with them, so it's multi sensory, not knowing that is exactly what he needed. But then he would fail the tests on Friday, and it didn't make sense to me. And so that's when uh, the school districts were commonly not testing until third grade because they believed they had to have the exposure to print to see if that print disability was in effect. So I understood their ideology, but um, now we know that we can detect it earlier and that the screeners in K1 and 2 are are vital. But the other thing that we were underneath was the failure model. They didn't test for disabilities without a failure. So unfortunately for my son, with my ability to help him compensate, he wasn't failing classes until seventh grade. And that's when they tested him for dyslexia and found out he had dyslexia and we could have spared a lot of hard years Mm -hmm. for him. Um, do you mind
1: sharing the story about him not wanting to go to school and praying one night about that? Because that just tells you how much these kids struggle. And uh, they don't always voice how much they're struggling, I think, to their parents, because they're pleasers. They want to do well. They're finding ways to cope. They really are problem solvers. And so... um, Get your Kleenexes ready.
2: (laughs) Yeah, um, it was, I was actually, I was like, I don't know if I could tell that today without getting a little choked up. Um, So, um, we can pause. No, that's totally okay. Okay. It's the the raw emotion of what you're going through. Because as a, for me to have dyslexia and fight for myself is a completely different emotion than watching your child struggle. And um, the other thing that when you're mentioning what they're doing, they're also working harder than their peers to have less of an accomplishment. And uh, so one night we were doing our prayers, and he asked God if he could live in heaven and not go back to school. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started researching about dyslexia. So um, yeah, I it started the quest. It was very hard. It was. A, it, we're still on our journey. We're still trying to compensate for um, the school systems. I'm a very proud public educator. I believe we do the best we can with what we have, with what we know. Um, but that's why I'm advocating so hard for lives to be changed and not be on the path we were on.
1: Right. And you mentioned earlier too, um, you know, dyslexia, one advantage these days for parents and teachers, um, and even adults that may realize that they they have dyslexia is Google. Correct. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what we're saying?
2: Uh, you had parent had prepared some questions for me ahead of time is like, what, what would you have done differently? And, In all caps, I'm like, well, we didn't have Google. I didn't have the accessibility to information that parents have now. I mean, this was years ago. And so we really, truly relied on the people in our district with the limited knowledge they had. I mean, why would they know either? You only know what you can. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm grateful that I went to Barnes & Noble and I went down that aisle and read that book so that I could at least be pursuing um, dyslexia for him.
1: Yeah. And we touched on a couple of these already, but um, what characteristics do teachers and parents need to be looking for? And um, you've talked about the unexpectedness. Um, on the parent side, you are spending a lot of time on the homework, not seeing the results in school. You've provided a language-rich environment. You've read. You've provided all the support from home, and it doesn't seem to be translating for, to school. Um, what more if you want to add to what parents can be looking for, but for teachers in the classroom that have a lot of experience with teaching, um, I know some, what should they be looking for? I know sometimes it's those kids that seem lazy. Um, How do you suggest that they look for these characteristics of dyslexia without kind of jumping to conclusions that we might tend to jump to?
2: Well, two things. One, when we talk about the parents, if you or your spouse were pulled for reading or struggled to read or don't enjoy reading, that's one of your first things you want to be wondering. Because uh, it's neurobiologic in origin, and so one of the parents generally are like, you know, I've always hated reading, or I never really clicked when I read. Mm -hmm. Or they have a sister or a parent that struggled, or sibling, I shouldn't say sister, a sibling. So for the parents, you want to think about your own uh, educational experiences and are they matching what your child's going through and what a lot of parents do is say I made it and I struggled but they didn't know they had a disability mm-hmm. and so um, that's kind of how I was with my son at first going you know I, I, I remember not liking to read but I just assumed mm-hmm. if I fed him all these tools and strategies he mm-hmm. then would but then he didn't mm-hmm. so so that's what I would do for parents and then for teachers like I said Um, There's a characteristics chart that uh, Farron can provide maybe after the podcast that lists other things that are associated with dyslexia, for for instance. I can tell time. I have the intelligence to tell time. But when I look at an analog clock, um, the hands, I will get them confused. And if it's above or below the line, it takes me longer to tell time. Uh, My daughter has a difficult time doing the months of the year. She understands them, she knows them, but to retrieve them in out of order without a song is difficult. So these are some of the things that are associated with dyslexia that are not decoding or spelling, encoding or decoding. And so a lot of people, the teachers need to know the other characteristics. And again, my number one is if you have a student engaging you orally, mm-hmm. enjoying to talk and are very creative, but they avoid print, whether reading or writing it, you need to wonder if they have characteristics of dyslexia and start documenting the things you're observing. Sometimes I
1: think the hardest students to identify end up being the students that we refer to as twice exceptional because you might have paperwork showing their uh, IQ and cognitive abilities. And so those students are the ones sometimes that we're like, well, we know they can do it or they're in AP classes yada 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 Um, if they would just slow down if they would just try harder that we might overlook them as possibly having dyslexia do you have any um, tips or suggestions on kind of monitoring or looking for uh, twice exceptional students that could have dyslexia
2: this is a passionate platform for me because these are my secondary teachers who i'm speaking to um, and also that many parents who are like, they just don't want their child to have a disability. So this is a this is another area. Um, and when you say secondary, like high school age? Middle, middle school, school and high, high school. school okay. What happens is these students have been able to compensate, so they were able to read at, at the elementary level. Uh, they were actually, fluency was probably average, just a little bit above average, even though their intelligence was able to think higher than those uh, chapter books. So they get to the secondary level, and now they can't, from memorization read and they don't have the decoding skills so they're having trouble in like a history class words that they don't know uh, foreign language pharmaceutical class uh, now they're starting to say well what's my deal why can't I reform like my peers and the parents wouldn't think disability because no paperwork up to this point has even indicated there was something wrong so this is another area that you need to uh, emphasize for your secondary teachers if you have a student who you would expect them to be performing like their peers, and you're kind of surprised that they didn't do as well on that test, or you're surprised that their paper wasn't, uh, there were words misspelled on the paper they wouldn't, wouldn't expect from that kid, you're probably looking at a twice-exceptional student, or you need to be wondering it. And um, oftentimes the parents are just wanting them to work harder. They don't want an identification. They don't want to be known as a, with a disability. And uh, when I make an analogy with medical we would have a different philosophy. If you knew your child had uh, diabetes, but they didn't need insulin, they just needed a better diet, you would make an adjustment for them. Even if it was slight, you would do what was right and best. So I have students that were in all AP classes. They were very successful. And uh, actually, it was a math teacher that came to me for once that he keeps reversing his letters. I know he has the right computation, but he's writing them in the wrong place. And so we did look at dyslexia and he was, he's dyslexic, but he was able to compensate and all he needed was that additional accommodation and he was able to be successful and he has the accommodations into college and it doesn't give him an advantage, it puts him equal to his peers. Mm -hmm. So thank you for adding that about the twice exceptional student.
1: Yes, and I think some parents or even teachers might hesitate at the idea of testing because they're like, man, if... He qualifies, then this student's going to go into this intensive program, and they don't need that. They just need some accommodations. And so I think like you'd already touched on, um, starting first with just identifying a disability, the, the way we treat that or support that can look very different. So anyone out there that's like, I don't want them in some intensive dyslexia program, I would just say that a diagnosis is the first step, and then after that you do what's best for the student.
2: Correct, and you can modify that plan. The district is, um, we, we have to offer the program because we want the student, we don't know where the gap is, and we want them to have that exposure, so we always offer it. But a parent can waive that mm-hmm. and say, I, I want the identification, but I, I feel like my student will benefit uh, if they just had accommodations. And that is on an individual basis. I've got students that may be where the parent's, a field, but the program is the right thing for that student. I've had kids who didn't want to do it and once they start, I'd I'd say, well, why don't we just give them a semester or have a few sessions and what was really great is like, oh my gosh, I've always gotten that confused. I'm like, I know you have dyslexia. (laughs) So I I had some kids who were resistant and parents and then they loved that they got to understand what what their brain was doing Mm -hmm. and so um, give that opportunity there for your child in case that helps them in the long run. I know it was I was 43 when I started learning the alphabet for the first time, that structured literacy, and when I had no idea that A had five ways it could be said. I mean, I, I didn't know.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: um, so, no, I, I think the program offers a lot, and you need to educate the parents on what we do inside of our classes, what does therapy offer, and what are the benefits. So I, I had many students who resisted it, and parents that weren't informed, but once they were educated on it, they, they chose it. Yes. But uh, for the few that, that don't, it can be waived. So, a lot of times, parents, when we get to the
1: accommodation part of the ARD meeting or the 504 meeting, um, I get this a lot, that they don't want to give their child a crutch. Mm-hmm. And so, I've used the analogy of, you know, if you know your child's foot's broken, you, you don't go straight to physical therapy they might need a surgery maybe they just need a boot maybe they do need crutches but then again the goal is to get them to be able to walk again uh, however that might look Um, what do you say what would you say to parents if they're equating accommodations to a crutch or the easy way out or um, not challenging them to reach a further potential Um, what's
2: your take on that? Uh, I'm going to agree with their ideology because I do think that um, many times we have made kids dependent and we have anxiety Mm -hmm. and the goal is for our students to become independent and confident Mm -hmm. and so the balance is what we have to look at and again it's on an individual basis. Uh, Whenever you have a student come in I will ask them, uh, I go through the characteristics chart with the parent and say, here's where your child's dyslexia is affecting them. Just because you say dyslexia, like I said before, it's different for every single student. And so you don't walk in and say, my child's dyslexic. They need oral accommodations, extra time, extended this, and let's look at their need. And so, and the need can change depending on the content or the connection with the teacher, and so, if I have am in a high school level, and the teacher is a multisensory teacher, they they have posters and they have pictures and they've got songs and they've got all these different ways for us to get that information in. The student might be successful without any accommodation. Same subject matter, new teacher, and their lecture style. Your child's dyslexia is needing some support in that room. They may need the notes given to them. They might need a shortened assignment they may need um, or an oral test read to them. So an accommodation needs to fit the needs with that content, maybe with a teacher, or maybe where your student's deficit is more severe. So it is such an individual basis. I do agree I don't want to crutch any child. I don't want them using something they don't need, and I've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. So parents need to be knowledgeable of where the deficit affects them, what the instruction is, Um, being administered in the classroom and what the child will need to adjust that year. So if they're receiving dyslexia intervention support through
1: um, a curriculum like MTA, take flight, alphabetic phonics, is it possible too that as they move through that curriculum you can possibly pull some support away?
2: Uh, The answer is going to always be it's individual to that student. I have seen a student who is twice exceptional and once they've had a program, they're like, I've got this. Mm-hmm. And they are prepared. And maybe they struggle a little bit, but not much more than their peers. That's different. And then I have students who will be in a standard program, and they still continue to struggle. And they actually need more accommodations because even though we strengthened that language center in reading, the curriculum became so much harder. Mm-hmm. They're now reading multiple chapter books. And the vocabulary in their history class, plus you've now added a foreign language, and they're needing more accommodation because it has become harder. Mm -hmm. And I have dyslexia, and we've gone through remediation, but for each student it's different what that may look like.
1: Okay. Um, And then what would you say to teachers that seem hesitant to um, offer these accommodations because they feel like they're giving the student the answer, Um, it's not fair to the other students, or, you know, again, talking to the student and seeing their participation in, Uh, class discussions it just doesn't seem like they need them Um, what's the right way to approach that
2: I really do enjoy coming out and talking to my teachers because if they believe dyslexia is just a reading and spelling uh, disability then from that perspective I can see why they think that Um, also if they don't look at dyslexia on an individual basis and say This student with dyslexia is different than that student with dyslexia. If they don't know how to discern the difference in what the actual student's individual need, then I can see that perspective. Mm -hmm. The other way I can see their perspective is you do have a student who is capable, and they have relied on their accommodation, and they're not performing at that level. And Mm -hmm. I'll talk to my parents. They're like, this teacher is so hard on my student. And I said, well, let's measure what that means to say they're hard on them. I had two teachers at my high school that did not bend on their expectation and my dyslexia students rose to that expectation every single time and those teachers loved them they valued their accommodation they extended a time but they would not change what they wanted that child to do and my kids saw in themselves something fantastic they saw growth Mm -hmm. so um, I love educating my parents my students and my teachers on how to individualize that experience for each kid So um, it took communication when I first got to the campus and said, you know, this is the way dyslexia may manifest. And here's the social-emotional connection that they're going to need first. They need to know that that trust is there. Because uh, my favorite analogy is if you are not athletic, what room in the building do you hate the most? And the answer is always PE. Well, I have a print disability. And so I'm always being put in an environment where I'm not, I feel less than my peers, and I'm trying to hide that shame, and I'm trying to just be under the radar. And when a teacher calls you out, no one may be thinking, oh, you're stupid. Mm -hmm. Like, they really aren't. But that's what goes through my mind that, oh, my gosh, now everyone knows. I can't spell. I can't read. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. So... When the teacher allows for a conversation at the beginning of the year, let's walk through, you have a 504 for dyslexia, I want to meet one-on-one, how does that affect you and what are the things you would need from me? I noticed here on your 504 it's saying this and this, I want to make sure you're successful so I'm going to help grow you, I don't want to affect your grade but I want you to see how far you can go, then we'll make sure that accommodation is supporting you appropriately because I want to see how much you can do on your own. I don't think it's fair if if the 504 states that that accommodation is there, it is to be administered, and it should not ever affect their grade. But if you have that communication to let the child see where they can grow and to see what else um, that can be put on their plate so they're empowered, Mm -hmm. that's a great relationship. But it has to start with trust. It has to start with communication. The teacher needs to understand that student individually, and the student needs to be empowered and know what they need to take responsibility for. Mm -hmm. So another analogy that I use is if I walked into a building, I, I have poor vision, I wear glasses. If I walked into a building and apologized to everyone in the room for wearing my glasses, it would be socially odd. Maybe like, why is she apologizing for wearing glasses? Most of us in here are. Yeah. But if I didn't wear my glasses and I couldn't read my PowerPoint and I was bumping into desks, that's, that's irresponsible. So I tell my students, you have dyslexia and you owe no teacher or any individual an apology for what you have, and I want your shoulders back, and I want you to feel good about yourself. But I also want you to take ownership and responsibility for it. You're going to need to use your accommodations. You're going to need to listen to your dyslexia teacher and start implementing some of those rules and strategies, and you can progress and be confident and empowered and independent. That kind of leads into one of the other questions I get
1: Um, or suggestions I don't know the right word at the moment but I've had parents say can we just not tell them that they have dyslexia and um, I have my own personal opinion but what is your take in that situation because it can be very sensitive to the parents experiences Mm -hmm. or their how they may see the future looking or again for each child
2: how they'll internalize that It's very interesting because I've only had that three times, but I have had parents um, tell me that they don't want their child to know. And the first thing out of my mouth is always I have to respect the decision of a parent. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I don't know your whole story and where that is coming from, but may I shed light on my experience? And so what I offer to them is, if again, I always go back to medical. If your child was diabetic and they had type 1 diabetes, you wouldn't want to go to birthday parties and say, no, 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 you can't eat cake. No, 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 you can't have the ice cream and not tell them why. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would cause more anxiety for them to know that they're different but not to understand the how come. So when a, a child has any type of illness in the medical field, we walk them through things. So you would say, this is your pancreas and this is what it's supposed to do and yours is doing it differently. This is why we do these things. And that way there's an understanding Mm -hmm. And that's how I treat dyslexia. I would not hide it from them. I'd let them be confident in it. And if I'm hiding it, again, I think that causes a shame response instead of an empowerment response of this is how you were designed. And and I will tell it over and over. I I speak over my students from Dr. Carolyn Leaf's book. I teach them that they have purpose. Mm -hmm. And every day I let them know your brain was designed for a great purpose and we're just going to give you some strategies and strengths. But it was already designed. Mm-hmm. Wonderfully, I love that you're creative. I love that you see the world the way you do. So let's just work with it and strengthen it. So, I, I, my opinion would always be to um, encourage parents to let their child own it.
1: Mm-hmm. I was going to say, uh, someone else had said that if you don't give their academic struggle this name, that the student's going to find a name for it anyways. Right, and it might be a name like, "Well, I must be dumb or Correct. stupid." Um, So do you think that identifying dyslexia keeps them from internalizing a a negative name that they may give it?
2: Well, up till the age of 43, and I didn't say this to cut myself down, I said it because I had owned who I was. So it's so funny that that's how you worded it. And I said, I am smart enough to know I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't bright, and I had accepted that for myself. And the reason why is if, if I can't remember Tuesday and Thursday, I get those confused. When you do the hierarchy of knowledge, the foundation is just facts, mm-hmm. and that's what I have difficulty with. But when it comes to assimilation and creativity, which is higher level thinking and met, um, um, making metaphors, I'm great at that. Mm-hmm. But I had never learned that my the way I think is at a higher level, and my struggle, my disability, is with facts. And so owning that for myself was when I finally had the realization, and that's the empowerment and the independence. Mm. So, yeah, I I absolutely believe that. So you've touched on this as well. Um, Aside from
1: a dyslexia curriculum intervention, what else do you think students with dyslexia would benefit from? What other education and um, what have you taught? You've touched on it with the Carolyn Leaf, your brain has a purpose, more of that social-emotional, because I think parents want to know how they can help their kid, and there's lots of ways, but I think we focus a lot on the academic. So beyond academic support, how else can we support our students, or what else could we teach them or capitalize on
2: strengths and interests? One of them is the social-emotional development, and I I do believe that... uh, in anything that you're teaching a student, uh, when I worked with students with autism, when you work with students that have a physical disability, the first thing that we want to do is be real, and so we walk through anything that we're being challenged by, As long and we are also working through what are their strengths, and that balance for themselves puts them in a reality that they can see themselves um, with the correct perspective. Uh, I was taught with the GT students that if you tell them that they're smart over and over again, that they equate knowing answer is smart, and that what you want to do is you want to praise. I love how hard you worked. And the same truth for my students with dyslexia. I've got to put them in the right mindset so that they can grow inside that print environment. So the social emotional has to be addressed first, and that empowerment is when we say, how does it affect you? What are the things that you need, and I give them that choice. Mm -hmm. Choice, again, Dr. Carolyn Leaf talks about how powerful it is to give the opportunity of offering information and not telling you what to do. That frees up that space for them to discover, which discovery is one of the strongest uh, tools for education is discovery when kids can look at it and explore it and then say, oh, I came to this conclusion. Yes. As opposed to be told told or writing notes and doing worksheets. But when a student actually discovers it, there's a deeper meaning uh, learning to it because it Goes through all their mind, um, that process. Um, I also am pushing or advocating strongly for audiobooks. And this is because my brother is highly intelligent. He can get through a book in a week. And so he would mail me books and say, Nancy, you would love this. And I would fake it very well and read the few chapters, you know, here and there and read the back and kind of talk or discuss it with them. And then when we found out I had dyslexia, My brother started sending me audiobooks and realized that I could easily hold my own of any concept or or topic that he would send. It didn't matter what he was wanting me to read. I was able to intelligently understand it and uh, internalize it and have communication about it. Versus if you didn't give me the audiobooks, I just didn't explore it. So audiobooks at a young age, even if your child's doing well reading... You want to give them the audiobooks that are helping them to decode, but also the audiobooks for their intelligence. You've got first and second graders that are ready for chapter books, but they can't decode. So you want to give them that gift. Or your twice exceptional kid, they're fine in elementary school, but you want to give them audiobooks so when they get into high school and they're wanting to do AP classes, they can be downloading them and listening to them while they're running or doing something else, and they can keep up with the rigor. That is one of the number one reasons my dyslexic kids leave AP classes. It's not understanding it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's the amount of reading they have to do. Yep. So again, audiobooks is my favorite way to help my kids become independent. And I'm going to add one more thing. Yeah. So a lot of people think when you say audiobook, if you're a good listener, you can do an audiobook. But you have to build that stamina. So I'd have them listen for just a little bit, check for understanding a little bit, and you build that time up, you scaffold it. It's not just turn them onto a book; they'll daydream, or mm-hmm. yeah, an age appropriateness too. Absolutely, yes. uh, absolutely. What's that <laughs> statistic
1: on like your age is how long you can listen? Correct. Your attention span is your
2: age. Oh, just straight up. So yeah. if you're seven, it's seven minutes. Yeah, uh, roughly, but yeah. Um, so that, that that's how I would gauge my classroom. If I had first graders, then six or seven minutes, I'd need to change my topic or ask. Her choice mm-hmm. and say, may we go for a few more minutes, and that's how you build that stamina. I had second graders, and this is through a Daily, um, daily Five, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic, fantastic program. Um, it's a classroom management style, and I had my second graders at 20 minutes sitting still, able to read a book, but you built up.
1: That's awesome. Well, that's where we're headed next is... How can teachers support students with dyslexia in a general education setting? And how can parents, again, support at home? And I would love to hear you elaborate more on choice because I think the trick is that as the teacher and as the parent, you're okay with both options. But to the child, correct, they're getting to choose what they want and they have, again, that power. So maybe if you could specifically talk about how choice looks in a gen ed setting and then um, at home you've shared the example of taking a break and then doing work and Mm -hmm. I won't I won't speak for you
2: yeah there's a time and a place for choice I had a parent come up and give me an example and I said absolutely there's there's a time where a parent makes the decision or a teacher makes a decision so if it's time to go to PE it's not do you want to go to PE or not want to go right right. there's time and place but when it's academic And you're wanting to um, give that trusted relationship. I I put it in the adult terms. If you had a boss and they have deadlines for the year and they come in and they just, look, you need to do this, 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 and this. It needs to be done by this and this. You would be overwhelmed. You would probably rise to the occasion, but there may be a more stressful environment. If your boss came to you and said, what are your objectives for this year? What are some of the goals that you'd like to see? Let me tell you what we feel as a company we need. And we walk through it. And we made a guideline of, "Hey, this is where we can fit this in together." You have a collaboration, you have a partnership, you've been respected, and you had choice. Uh, Oprah Winfrey had a savant on her show, and she asked him, "What do you wish adults knew?" And he said, and I'm paraphrasing. Like if someone goes back and googles it, I'm like I don't know, this is this is what I got out of it. Uh, he said, "Children are no different than adults in the way that they feel and experience; they just have less." experiences Mm. and so I've always I took that in so when I'm a teacher over six-year-old students I still extend respect to them and validate them and then when I had high school students and they're going through all their rush of hormones you know they deeply love and they deeply hate (laughs) and they I, I validated and gave the respect to them and still offered back a choice and support so from elementary school and to high school I was able to, uh, if I looked at a student's paper, Mm -hmm. Daily Five taught this, so they still get this credit. I'm so grateful for that book. They would only ask for two things that you noticed on the paper. So I would say even to a high school student, let's say they're really struggling, they've never passed star, I could rip their paper apart. I only pick two things. I've noticed that you don't have transition words between your paragraphs. And I've also noticed that you use the same word over and over and i think we could maybe elaborate it find a synonym or use it less which one of those would you like to work on well when a student is only working on one thing at a time they can take it in process it master it and move forward and i found i could get a high school student to improve their writing over several months then when you hand them their paper like these are the 15 things you're not doing right they're just overwhelmed Covered in ready. Covered in ready. <laughs> so I only I only offer two, and again at Daily Five offered that and it was a skill I adopted and I saw success from it. Same with my elementary students. I would say I noticed you're not capitalizing capitalizing the letter I, which is common for second grade. Mm-hmm. And we're also spelling of UV, which is also common for second grade. Which one would you like to work on? Then after work on what strategy would you like to use? Again, that's daily five. And from that strategy Let's say, what what do you think our goal could be? Do you think we could reach that in a week, or do you want to use two weeks? When you give it back to them, that's empowering them. And I think when people think social emotional, we need to coddle and love on and, and tell them you're great and every child gets a trophy. I think the opposite is true. We're wanting to give back to kids the ability to take ownership and independence. Uh, we have really gotten in their business a bit too much, and we want to give it back to the students that they're in charge of their learning one of my other favorite methods is the Socratic method. Uh, when a student is coming up to me, and it's never done with shame, and it's never done... Uh, I think a lot of teachers get irritated if this child asks again. And I said, if they're asking it again, then that means they still don't know it. And now you can document they've needed to hear it 13 times. But you don't you don't push shame on the child. So when I had a student, she couldn't figure out where to put our paper, and we only had one basket. And... It didn't bother me. I'd say, well, let's walk it through. Do you think you should put it in your backpack? No. Do you think you should put it in the trash? Mrs. D. Okay, so you knew more than you thought. Why don't you walk the room, and when you discover it or not discover it, come back to me and we'll walk through that again. It took her several weeks to figure out where to put her paper, but once we went through the process like that, she learned it. But what she learned even more is she would come up to me and she'd say, Mrs. D. And she'd pause for a minute and then say, never mind. She had learned how to think Mm -hmm. and to discover and to find for herself in a safe place that she could figure out things for her own. So I, um, I believe watching and be mindful as parents and teachers if we're shaming to redirect or if we're helping them discover to redirect. So that's a great one. Keeping that trusted relationship, respecting their age and respecting where they're at and what their growth. And, you know, you've got the kid over here who can do it all. Mm-hmm. And you think in your heart, man, I'm a great teacher. I'm a great parent. Or maybe that child is developed right. and they need to be challenged and they deserve to grow. Mm-hmm. If you have students in your classroom that can do everything right and always make a 100, then you as the teacher need to have growth mindset for them, too. So, um Knowing what's developmentally appropriate for teachers and for parents is also an, a strong thing. I didn't know my first grade student was struggling until my younger two kids were coming up and were surpassing his ability. They could tie their shoes and get their backpack and have their work in their binder, and I'm like, hmm, you're right, <laughs> interesting. So, um, and and so my oldest, he, it was just because he needed to develop those skills. It wasn't less intelligence or less heart. Um, there's a book called Late Lost and Unprepared and it talks about the different levels of ADD and ADHD how it can manifest itself differently and that it's not a character quality I think a lot of those kids get shamed at school as well to change that behavior I put ownership back on them I'm like, hey buddy, we're about to go to an assembly it's going to be a lot of movement and stimulation why don't we walk through some ways that you, you can help yourself I already prepared him to be successful. I wasn't like, uh, are we going to be signing your binder when we walk downstairs? Mm -hmm. That's shame. Mm -hmm. So I put him at successful. Do you want to sit next to me or do you want to sit by the wall so you can go get a drink when I give you the signal? I already knew it was going to be challenging for him. So we set him up for success. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things. And then on parents, uh, dyslexia is a processing disorder. If you're asking your child to go upstairs, brush your teeth on their pajamas get their reading book and say their prayers and they get upstairs <laughs> yep and then they're playing in the toy room and you're like how did that happen so what instead of being shameful i walk through with my child you're really good at doing one thing when i ask you i'd like at your age to see if you'd like to work on doing two things so would you like me to write it down walk with you Work with your sibling. How can I help you that you accomplish achieving two?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, they weren't even mindful of it. They didn't even realize they weren't doing it. And so then they start recognizing, oh, I need to get two things done when I go upstairs. You wait a little time say, you know, I think you're ready for three. Do you feel ready for three? Well, you offered choice. You gave them strategy. You gave them respect. And you had an expectation of growth. That can help your child at home or at school.
1: And you started, too, where the student was at. Correct. So there is a little bit of confidence and feeling like, I can do one more, instead of trying to go from one step to five steps. Correct. Yes. Yeah.
2: And that's called scaffolding in the education world. And the same thing is you meet a child at their level. And, and no matter when I was teaching elementary or high school, I met my child at where they were, my students where they were. And that's respect. Mm-hmm. They, they knew that I wasn't saying, how do you not know this? You're in third grade. How do you not know this? You're a junior. Instead, it's since you don't know that, that's my role. Mm-hmm. And I love this strategy. And one thing that we've discussed before
1: is the right time to introduce this or practice this is not in the moment when you're frustrated trying to get out the door to go to church on Sunday morning. You're right. <laughs> so finding a safe time um when would you suggest doing that?
2: That's a beautiful thing that you brought up even as a parent um, with anyone even your your boss I mean, you always want to protect the you want to protect the space so someone can hear you there's another book called Crucial Conversations and what you're trying to do is find a place where people aren't protecting their own pride mm-hmm. they put the goal out in the middle and they can reach it uh, that book is how are successful people successful and they says that people who can hold a hard conversation how am i able to communicate when there's conflict mm-hmm. and the same is true for when you're growing a child in a, in a skill if you put it in a space where they're safe they can receive what you're saying and when you're putting it offering it as a choice and saying hey i've noticed you're late to class and i don't know if you're choosing that or if if you're having a hard time getting here, so let's walk through what you need and how I can support you. That's completely different than, you're late to my class again, and it's D-Hall for you. Yeah, That is a, I mean, that's a style that teachers may do, but I think you may see that pattern repeat itself. Mm -hmm. If you really want the pattern to stop, I think if you offer support. And what you find out, I had a student that was late every day. Well, his first period was all the way out across the campus. It was at the field house. And the second period class was at the third story floor. And, you know, if they didn't have that conversation or communication, which neither of them were, uh, the student just assumed the teacher knew, and the teacher was saying, these are my expectations. And once we had the conversation and we made an adjustment, because the expectation is you are to be at class on time. So offering the communication in a safe environment when it's not the heat of the moment, people can work together and get to a solution and most often, I think it's misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. I think
1: well-worded questions without attacking are the great way to start those conversations. Um, I am spend part of my day on a primary campus, and I hear sometimes walking down the hallway, you know, it's the fifty-second day of school, and you still don't know where to put your folder. You know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, or they're asking, and they're like, you know, man, I then an aside like when will they learn where to put it and it I'd like to think the student has learned if I ask the teacher she'll tell me where to put it that's something they've learned I ask I have my folder I don't know where to put it oh if I ask the teacher she'll tell me and correct so they have learned a strategy and learned a pattern yeah and so you have to almost reteach it like you I loved your example of the teacher instead of t- Stop telling them where to put their folder. They're going to keep coming to you, you know. Pose the question, not where do you think, you know. Just, that's a great question. Where do you think you could put your folder?
2: Right. And then and walk them and through and have them the patience home. for it. The other, we have a, a coaching class that we go to in, uh, here at Region 10, and they reworded things to, what would that look like? Mm. I love it. I use it everywhere. So when I have parents call in, they're frustrated with their teenager, or they're frustrated with their boss, or they're frustrated, I, you, you, they simply say, what would being on time look like? Mm-hmm. What would a great day at school look like? That's mm-hmm. a great question to ask a student with dyslexia. And they may say, there's no reading. Right. Or, that teacher's not there. Mm. Well, um, another thing kids will say is they'll say, I hate that teacher hates me. Yes, I hear that. And when you hear that teacher hates me, what that really means is they haven't found their connection. Mm -hmm. And it could be the teacher truly loves that kid. Mm -hmm. But when she says, where do you think you put your paper? Right. (laughs) The sarcasm makes them feel shame, and so they think the teacher hates them. And so I've talked to teachers on countless occasions, go to your most insecure Place. Mm-hmm. So, if a lot of teachers. If I said right now you're going to have to sing karaoke in front of your staff in a bikini, what's your comfort level? Oh my gosh! <laughs> right, every teacher is looking awful. around. That would. Be, and I said, that's how we feel about reading in school. You have us at our most insecure place every day, and not all of them. I don't want to be dramatic. Right. Some kids, it's only the one class, and if it's less severe, so I don't want to make it dramatic. But it is a reality that we're uncomfortable, and so anytime a teacher is using sarcasm, they're like, I know you're smart, I know you know where it goes, so get to it. Mm -hmm. They're not babying them. Okay, I get it, but if they've got a pattern and they're shutting down, that's when we need to go into this other area and say, okay, what would it look like in this class? What communication do you need the teacher and my favorite thing to do at high school level is when they come in this one teacher, mm-hmm. the one that I love, 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 because she was hard. She was. She did not change her expectation. Like, I can't stand her. And I was like, you're going to love her by the end of the year. I promise you will love this teacher. Mm-hmm. When my kids come back, they're like, "That my favorite teacher was that one because she, she, she did challenge them because they were worth being challenged. I think when we just give them the accommodation and give them the grade and that's when the teacher's not working hard for you Um, so how do you think she did it Uh, she did it because she had a trusted relationship in that classroom and she knew those kids backwards and forwards she studied their 504 she met them one-on-one and she said here's what I know about you these are the things you need and I'm going to make sure that happens so here's what I want in return." Mm. so she she knew them and what they needed and she did not lessen on that expectation and she gave the extended time she says you show up here i'll be here at six thirty in the morning i'll stay till six at night mm-hmm. i'll meet you at what you need but i'm going to expect you to work hard yeah she's been a ta- fantastic teacher let's just clone her and put yeah. her everywhere but.
1: um so, as we come to the end here, what are your hopes and dreams for the identification process for students with dyslexia and effective dyslexia programs? I know we're great. It's an honor to be here in Texas, where we seem to be um, progressive in our movements. Um, but in again, what would a
2: perfect day of dyslexia look like? like? I'll try to. What
1: would what, that look? What like? would that look yeah. like?
2: Well, I first have to be grateful and thankful to Tyne C. Miller, um, no small footprint. Uh, that, that She has changed my life, she's changed my son's path, and she's changed countless people in the state of Texas because she was strong enough and brave enough to stand up and say dyslexia students deserve an education that's appropriate for them. For
1: People that aren't familiar with her, can you give a brief little who she is, where she's making these power moves? So So in the
2: 80s, Tynesia Miller's son was uh, identified with dyslexia but did not qualify for special education. And she said "But he still deserves to have support. And so she helped create the very first Dyslexia State Handbook, and it was like 12 pages. And it was just saying that we could, under 504, also have our support with an identification of dyslexia. And so our handbook right now, we've even addressed it's always, always stated that both are options. So you can be special ed or 504. But what's unique to Texas is it's having that 504 support. And so those twice exceptional kids or kids who um, are in the, you know, need um, less support, but still need support are getting it. Uh, so Tynesie continued to sit on the State Board of Education and continued to grow the handbook. And, to, and when we said, hey, kids should be screened, and they weren't doing it, we got another law that said, oh, we really mean you need a screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, well, early identification matters, advocacy matters, accommodation should be there, they should have it at the secondary. So she, I want to just continue that passion and that drive so that students with dyslexia are uh, getting what they deserve and then Stephen Yearout is a parent advocate with Empowering Dyslexia. And we had a strong conversation about um, classrooms. And he said, Nancy, if we know we're going to have band, we have a band room. We know we're going to have choir, we have a choir room. We know we need a cafeteria, they're going to eat. We know we need a library. We know there are students with dyslexia that are going to need services. There needs to be a classroom I de- uh, dedicated to those kids. And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I love parents that are advocating and supporting and pushing us so that we're giving these kids what they need. It's one in five. It's not a small number. And when we talk to districts about accountability and talk about um, the passing star and what, what the language is for funding, those dyslexia students are affecting all those things for your, for your district. And we want to make sure that we're identifying them young and getting those skills and then 80% of our prison population have reading disorders. Mm-hmm. And so what more could we do than to make sure those reading skills are really being mastered in our younger grades? And um, this Texas, I'm just so proud of you, Texas. House Bill 3 is also we're going to have our K through 2nd teachers. are going to understand structured literacies. They're going to have the skills of a dyslexia therapist in understanding how our language works and how it's put together. Um, so I, I just think this is one of the most phenomenal times to be in this field and watch the growth and changes. So I just hope to be a part of that wave and ensuring more students can feel empowered, independent, and confident at a younger age than when I found it in my 40s.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then parents having the skills and knowledge to know how to support them instead of like what I did is learned as I was going and didn't have the right skills at the right time for my son. but. Um, yeah, I can hope to continue the fight. Well,
1: I think you are. I think you're contributing to all all the things. So um, in wrapping up, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? And then we'll give them information on how to get in contact with you if they have questions or support no matter where they're hearing this. But did you have any closing thoughts or comments that we didn't get to? Uh,
2: My main thing is... uh for parents to become knowledgeable and to continue their education, there are parent groups. Your districts are now becoming more aware and offering parent nights. <clears throat> and to get your children involved. There's a mentor program that we're starting at Region 10. And we did find success when someone like you is telling their story. And every time I go out and speak, every single time I have an adult come up tearful and say, Nancy, so you just told my story. I had no idea I had dyslexia. I've always felt stupid, so I love getting that message out there. And that mentor program helps that. So um, kids are feeling like they can share it and not hide behind it. So if your district's not familiar with the mentor program or would like to know more information about that, that would I'd like to close saying it's yes. empowering. Yes? yes, if
1: kids, you've said this before. If kids see that they can make it,
2: mm-hmm. then
1: they're willing to work. You know that much harder in the present.
2: Just having hope. When you're in sixth grade and you're struggling to pass STAR, and football's huge in Texas, and when so when a football player comes in and says, "Oh, I just signed my scholarship, and I'm going to be playing football," oh, and also I still haven't passed STAR English one. Those kids are like, "Wait, what? You're successful. Your high school went well for you. You're going to go to college, yeah." So um, I do, I think I think it's, it, and my cop, my high school kids were then afraid to go to college, some of them, and so I had college kids come back and mentor my high school kids, they're like, you can do it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's just a beautiful relationship, and then just us parents who are walking through it and saying, you know, I didn't know I could accomplish, because I had told myself over and over I wasn't smart enough to do it, so.
1: This is a spur of the moment question, but what do you say to the parents that have struggled, and you're... Telling them about this empowerment, you're providing all this hope for their child, and they have trouble believing it because their experience was so different, and they have trouble when their child's coming home feeling the way that they may still feel. How, what would you recommend to the parent to be almost, find that strength to be strong and confident and hopeful for their
2: child? I do several things. They, they would love to get an identification, but it's also often expensive. And so what I've encouraged them to do, I said, if you have the means, it made me feel good when I got identified. If you don't have the means to do that, I recommend the book The Secret Life of the Dyslexic Child. And then if they uh, believe it for themselves that they fit the characteristics, then just go from that point on. You may not have an identification, but feel confident to own that. Then I give them my phone number and just say, you know, if you want to walk through anything, I recommend that. I recommend reading Brene Brown's book or Dr. Carolyn Leaf's book because both of those were talking about finally owning who you are, giving yourself the permission to uh, have choice and a voice, and then strengthening those skills. Get audiobooks, give yourself that opportunity to be what you want to be. A lot of them, I think, are, well, I just knew I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but you can do it with a strategy. I didn't think I could do it either. So um, I, I, I offer that information. And then getting more involved with these parent groups and there, anything that we're saying works for your child. And also, I meant to say this earlier, many of the strategies that we use for dyslexia are EL uh, teachers are doing as well. So mm-hmm. those are both comparable. So a lot of things I said today would work for your EL students. but 100%. Okay, so
1: we can... Um, include links and specifics, but um, as far as where to contact you, Region 10 website. Um, if uh, we have audience members listening in other parts of district or in other parts of the state of Texas, are they able to contact their region service center? Is that what you would recommend? Absolutely,
2: they can do both. We have a helpline. It's also called a hotline. We call it helpline here. Um, It's an 800 number, and when you call that number, no matter where you are in the state of Texas, it goes to Region 10. That's where our dyslexia consultant, state dyslexia consultant is housed, is Dr. Royal. Um, So they're welcome to call that hotline. But they also can reach out. We have a service center in all 20 uh, regions, and so we have beautiful, wonderful people. They're in my network. They're people I work with and draw information from, very resourceful. Uh, or they can also call Region 10 and, and get me if they have information or if they have questions. And
1: if they're out of the state of Texas, um, there's different state laws everywhere. Where would you suggest they start? Oh uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't know that you know that because we live in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> Texas is pretty
2: amazing. But uh, dyslexia is getting more of um, awareness. And so we do have people from other states coming into Texas being trained in Nye House. Take flight, MTA, mm-hmm. Alphabet Phonics, and if I miss some, I apologize. Yes, there's all of so our dr- we have a lot yeah. of different programs here in Texas. So we are having people come in and looking at what our state's doing and what our state handbook looks like. So you'd have to call your own state to find out what your laws are. Also, reach out to the International Dyslexia Association because they will let, they have information on what your laws are. Actually, they think they they have a map on there, and it you can click on your state and it'll tell you whether or not you do have state laws for dyslexia. And then um, the ALTA is also another great place. It's Academic Language Therapy Association, and they have information about what your state's doing as well.
1: And we'll be sure to include all those links, so drive safely. Don't get overwhelmed trying to write all these down. We'll also include some of the books that, well, all the books that Nancy suggested, um, so we'll have that for you too. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for having uh for letting me have you on our
2: podcast today and sharing all your knowledge and wisdom. Thank you for all that you're doing in your school district and changing lives one by one, but it's making such a movement. So thank you for having me today. Thanks for that.
0: Okay. That was the end of the interview. And that was so much information. That might be one that I need to listen to multiple times, or you might need to listen to multiple times, or if maybe even in a few years, whenever your kids are a little bit older. So I think that's awesome. Farron.
1: Yes. Way to go. I'm oh. so glad you did this one. No, I just appreciate uh, Nancy giving up some of her valuable time. We could talk about that all day. What but, I really liked... Oh, sorry. To cut. No, you go.
0: What I really liked is... So I work with ESL kids, so that's English as a second language, or ELs, English learners. But technically, no one knows every English word ever, so aren't we all ELs? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but... <laughs> so I like how a lot of the tactics and strategies are the same thing, That it's what I'm doing, too, so i thought that was neat and i didn't know that about dyslexia programs so
1: look at that Mm -hmm. i think uh, this um, episode is also valuable if you have dyslexia and maybe your partner doesn't or um, just to share with others in your life what it's like to have dyslexia or some of the struggles you've been through nancy being vulnerable and sharing you know Her dyslexia moments, I thought that was really neat.
0: Yeah, I thought it was great. And so thank you, Nancy, for being vulnerable, telling us about yourself, your son, your stories. That was really good. So we really appreciate that. And uh, yes, that's all I have to say about that.
1: Lots to digest.
0: Take it a bit at a
1: time. (laughs) Three more times. (laughs) (laughs) Ready, set, go. There will be a quiz at the end. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Not really. Oh, thank goodness. Because (laughs) I need to listen to it some more. Yes, study time. (laughs) All right. Tell us what else you'd like to hear. We love doing the Listener's Choice episodes in addition to our book series. It's nice to go off the beaten path every so often. So let us know what you have questions about. And if we don't have the answers, we'll find them. That's
0: right. Stay tuned. We're going to start a new mini series now. Everything yep. is outable. Marie Forleo. Get your hands on the copy. We'll put it in the show notes.
1: Bye. Thanks for listening to the Witty and Gritty podcast. Join us at wittyandgritty.blog, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, check out our blog, and listen to more episodes. We're here to help you become your best self with a community that cares.